Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. The segment's brought to you by DNA of CRE. Look, if you're a commercial real estate agent, just Google it, <laughs> DNA of CRE. Well, today we have a special show for you. We have Anthony Graziano with us, and I like to call him Mr. Real Estate. He is the CEO of Integra Realty Resources. Now, they have 50 offices around the country. They service over 60 metro areas, one of the largest valuation and consulting companies in the U.S. And uh, Mr. Real Estate, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me back, Michael. I'm so glad to be back. I missed you last year, yes. and all of my predictions came true. Oh. So now I have, to, I have to come back and make sure we get some on record. Well, there you go. They do an annual report called Viewpoint, and is a, here's the 2020 Commercial Real Estate Trends Report that they put out each year, and it just came out. And, and Anthony, as you, as you look at this uh, report and as you help do it, uh, what, what was kind of the biggest theme that kind of came out of it this year? So, you know, we compiled the metro statistics for all the markets which, which we cover. Uh, we've been doing this now, I think this is our 26th or 27th year publishing the report. Uh, we then take a look at all the statistics and try to draw uh, some projections, but also to kind of give a report on what happened over the last year. Um, big picture, you know, we look at macroeconomic forces and try to compare them to what's happening in the asset classes and real estate markets around the country. Um, big picture is uh, 2019 surprised us, right? We were expecting 2019 to be slower than 2018. Um, changes in interest rates mid-year certainly gave us a little bit of a boost, uh, but transaction volume in most asset classes was up 2019 versus 2018. Um, we had suggested last year that uh, we would start to see a slowing uh, in transaction volume, and yet we had a very strong showing for most of the asset classes in 2019. That's great. And what did you see trend-wise for valuations? I think it's interesting that you guys do a report like this because you have so many appraisals under your belt each year. Yeah. So are there, where, how are valuations trending throughout 19? So again, you know, valuations, I think, continue to, to uh, have trended up. You know, okay. value creation has been pretty good across, uh, across most sectors, and transaction volumes have been up. Uh, mm -hmm. But what we have seen, obviously, is a little bit of a moderation in cap rates in many asset classes. And we've started to see investors and buyers really take a more cautious approach, buying current income versus just buying into future appreciation. Yeah. And tell us about your, your predictions, because this is the last year, but it's also the year ahead of us, right? And, and what are some of the trends you're seeing that could impact real estate moving forward? Sure. So from a macro perspective, uh, one of the things that we've identified in this report, uh, our economist, uh, Hugh Kelly, that works on the report with us, did a really good job on the, on the macro trends in the U.S. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting observation, I think, is what, is what the next decade is going to bring in terms of the changes in population in the U.S., um, if you look at the overall U.S. population, the growth rate is about plus or minus 1%, which is way below historic norms. Um, and our natural birth rate is below the replacement rate in the U.S. domestically. So what that means is that most of our growth is going to come, any real growth over that natural 1% rate is going to come from immigration. Uh, so that's going to impact policy in the years ahead. Uh, but the 10-year projection is really for some level of deceleration. If you look at population, if you look at the demographics of the U.S., historically it's been a pyramid, right? Larger base of younger people and a smaller base of aging Americans. Now, if you look at our population pyramid, it's really more like a tower. So there's sort of an equal amount, number of people in each cohort, which means there's not a lot of growth coming up from the bottom. 
Um, that's going to fundamentally change the way in which we use real estate and also the demand for real estate in the future. It's also going to, going to start to create sort of more winners and losers when you factor in the dispersion of that population. Some metros right now are growing at 5, 8, 10, 15 percent population growth, and other metros, rural metros, are losing population growth. And so that tension over the next decade uh, we see as something to watch and, and keep an eye on in terms of investment strategy. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, everybody realizes the baby boomers are a really big portion of the, the U.S. population, right? And, mm -hmm. and I'm a baby boomer and you are, I guess, and we're not really going to reproduce anymore, I, I, I wouldn't expect, right? We're, we're done, and I may look a little <laughs> older, you know, I kind of fall in the Gen X, but, you yeah. know, even so, our, uh, not only are we not produce, reproducing, but yeah. even my children are likely to have kids later in life, so they're going to yeah. wait until their late 20s, early 30s, maybe even into their mid-30s, mm -hmm. uh, to have children. And when they have children, they're likely to have two or fewer children. Yeah. Um, so that is what's contributing to the long-term demographic decline of, 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 not, you know, of, of the lack of growth that we're seeing yeah. over the next decade. And has that resulted in less new supply as well? Because it seems like commercial real estate uh, really is performing well. Yeah. So it, it really depends market to market. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the supply is, is also driven by uh, people, the shifting and the, the growth within the various metros, right? Yeah. So um, it's not as if the entire country performs on average. Sure. You're going to have, uh, clearly over the last 10 years, we've seen a big migration into the CBD. Mm -hmm. And so that, the growth of the, the urbanization of the U.S. over the last 10 years has been very positive. We've seen a lot of uh, continued growth in our urban centers uh, and regeneration of our urban centers has been very positive. But we think over the next 10 years, we're going to start to see that move back to the suburbs. We're going to see a, a, re, a reascendancy of suburban uh, um, development. That's interesting. Is that from the younger folks that, that hey, they really want to be in the central business district, kind of going, hey, now maybe I want a house and, and, and a big lot? Or? Sure. I mean, as, as they delayed childbearing yeah. uh, years and as they even delayed marriage, uh, many yeah. of them moved to where their job was, right? Yeah. They moved downtown. They could live in a smaller place. Um, they didn't need space. I always say to everybody who says, oh, the millennials, you know, don't really want a big place. Um, I say, look, there's a lot of factors there, right? On one hand, uh, some of them can't afford a bigger place based on current wages. Yeah. Um, they're also making choices to live in smaller places because they intend to be single and more mobile. Mm -hmm. um, and so they tend to rent and live in smaller places in the younger portion of their lives. But I also think that if you've ever lived in a 500-square-foot apartment and tries to try to raise a baby, uh, <laughs> you'll get out into the suburbs if you can. Right. Uh, a combination of school system and also just the cost of living. Yeah. Right? It's more expensive to live in an urban area. Absolutely. And we've really seen prices and rents go up in these central business districts, right? That's so right. It's like even in, in Atlanta, which is fairly moderately priced, I mean, to get a tiny apartment in Midtown is two grand a month. You know, so sure. then you, so people may move out. Well, let's talk about cycle timing. That's always a question everyone has. And, and especially since you guys are doing the report, you look a year ahead, you have all these appraisals under your belt. Uh, what about the cycle? What sure. should we expect? So the cycle is difficult, right? A lot of people always ask me, when's the next recession? I made yeah. the point in the opening letter of this. Uh, there's a book uh, by Stephen Drubner called Freakonomics. I saw Stephen speak at one point, and he said, um, you know, humans love to make predictions, mm -hmm. uh, and they're also very bad at them. <laughs> and the fact that they make predictions, they're not ever really held accountable. And so uh, that's why bad predictions get made and nobody cares, because they throw them out and it, it never comes true and nobody holds them accountable. So I say prediction is folly. Uh, I, don't, I can't tell you when the next recession will be. I can tell you that 
uh, in this edition, we talk about the, the consensus economists that talk about when what the likelihood of a recession is. And in 2020, they say there's about a 53% chance of a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, I like to look at it the other way, which is to say there's almost a 50% chance that things <laughs> will go well. And so I'm going to remain an optimist and uh, hope that it doesn't rain. But I'm also bringing my umbrella. You're bringing your umbrella. <laughs> I like it. Well, what are some of the risks out there that could uh, cause a, a recession or a downturn, I like to say? Sure. So, I mean, most of the fundamentals in the U.S., everybody seems pretty bullish on, right? Headline unemployment is very low. Um, job creation has been slowing, but that's also a result that we're at a terminally low point of employment or unemployment, rather. Um, so the employment picture is good, which is now creating some wage growth and expansion in many markets, which is also a positive, particularly since housing costs have been growing at a rate that's faster than the rate of wage growth. So mm -hmm. that could create some imbalances or has been creating imbalances in the housing market. Our ownership rates are trending back up towards 65% for single family home ownership. Uh, so we're seeing good demand in the single family sectors. And we haven't seen any overbuilding. We've actually been, been underproducing our single family housing throughout the U.S. for the, probably the last eight or ten years since the last recession. So all of those factors, I think, contribute to the consensus opinion that things are pretty good. Yeah. Um, there's still plenty of capital available, a combination of um, continued low interest rates in the U.S., um, continued slow inflation within the U.S., which is sort of not, you know, not required that the Fed move rates to combat inflation. Um, but the other thing that's happening in the U.S. is that the rest of the global economy is really suffering. And that's bringing a lot of cross-border investment and foreign investment into the U.S., which also continues to drop pools of capital in, either through big REITs, pension funds, and also institutional investors, as well as private equity investment throughout the U.S. So part of the strength of the U.S. real estate market right now is the amount of money that's available. Yeah. Uh, we started to see that money shift a few years ago away from equities and more into debt. We've been doing a lot more work with with debt funds that are coming in and loaning on real estate as opposed to making an equity play um, because the spreads between equity and private debt um, were such that a lot of the players said, you know, we'd rather be on the debt side. Um, but nonetheless, there's still plenty of money. It seems to be plenty of money out there. Um, so the, all of those things, I think, are on the positive side. On the negative side, like I said, the world economy is suffering in many ways and in a lot of sectors. Um, that could never be good uh, in the long run. I mean, we can stay disconnected for a short time. But in the long run, the U.S. has to be a player in the world. Yeah. And uh, to the extent we're not, that will come home to bite us. So um, I think the world economy is one of the risks. Clearly, uh, you know, coronavirus and, and pandemics and all of that, uh, another part of the risk. And, and I think presidential election years are always risky. There's always uncertainty around that. Um, I can't say that, that uh, you know, anything else about the political environment has been normal for the last four years. <laughs> but aside from that... Uh, the, the bigger picture is what's the direction. And the business community seems to like the direction that we're on, which is translated into stock market gains. It's translated into good economic investment throughout the U.S. And so as there's a, a pivot point coming this November, you know, that uncertainty also is going to create some risks. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, now, recently I emceed the Georgia Appraisers Annual Conference in and I got to talk to a lot of appraisers there. And uh, one of my... You just love to hang out with appraisers, don't you? <laughs> no, I love you guys. <laughs> um, and one of the questions I love to ask them that I've got to ask you is, sure. you know, one of the things we do as real estate investors, obviously, is we predict uh, cap rates uh, on exit. 
right, and right. what valuations are going to be. So as you guys look forward when you're doing an analysis, you know, what, what do you do for future interest rates and cap rates? Sure. So, you know, that's one of the uh, parts of our discipline I think that's very interesting is there, there's, a, there's a dialogue in our discipline that says, should we be reporting what the market is doing or should we be reporting what the market should be doing? And so a lot of times what we're doing is we're talking to our institutional investor clients and our lending clients and otherwise and getting and gaining an understanding from them how are we how are, is the market pricing these deals mm -hmm. and that sort of translates into some of our thinking um, one of the reasons that we really called out this long-term uh, deceleration trend over the next decade is I don't think that the majority of the market really is properly pricing in mm -hmm. some of the premiums that they should be putting on those exit caps you know some of the capitalization rates on exit the assumption is everything's going to be about the same you know and if it's not then we'll have adjusted for that uh, and the other factors regarding income and rents will adjust for that um, I think but I think it's very hard also to take a position in the market that everybody else is not taking unless you have some really good support for long-term averages. So I think we look at those exit rates and we look at what the investors are doing uh, and we try to make a reasoned call. Um, if we think there are long-term risks, if the building is aging, if it hasn't been keeping up with its capital uh, investments over time, if we think the building's gonna be in a different position, we'll surcharge those risks. But I don't think most appraisers are looking out 10 years from now and saying, well, I think interest rates are gonna be 200 basis points higher, so I'm gonna really put a big surcharge on the cap rate because okay. it's not what the investors are doing right you know and if you did that you'd be valuing things that didn't have any relationship to what was happening with current pricing in the market yeah well that's interesting I, you know because i remember back in 06 and 07 and i'm selling commercial real estate um and, and we're I'm, I'm predicting exit cap rates and there was no way i could tell an investor that, that you're going to sell this at the cap rate that you're buying at because I saw, you know, that I saw the writing on the wall. Now I did not know it was going to be as bad as it was. I'm not saying I knew that. But, sure. But I knew something. When you go to a, a cocktail parties, and everyone there is talking about the houses and condos they're buying and flipping. Yep. You know, there's a problem coming. Well, look, I think in the income in the income sector, yeah. I think it's a little different, right? So, so in 2006, you were mm -hmm. concerned that the exit cap rates were out of balance and that maybe they wouldn't weren't going to be able to exit at that cap rate right. in the near future because yeah. you had concerns going forward as to the fundamentals yeah. in the next year or two years or three years. But the reality of it is those deals that you sold in 06, mm -hmm. if they held it through the downturn, they probably did exit at a better rate in 16. Good point. I mean, most investors yeah. are on an eight to 10 year you know, time frame. Yeah. I had an investor at NYU, the late Larry Fiedler, great guy, and uh, he hated appraisers. <laughs> and he used to tell the appraisers all the time, he says, you, you guys throw these numbers on these things and you don't have any rationale to what, what exit, where, how are you getting your exit cap rate? Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, we used to have these vigorous debates after class and I, would sp I spent a lot of time with the guy to understand his thinking. Mm -hmm. But his ideas were right. He says, you know, appraisers look at a 10-year cash flow mm -hmm. and that's almost sort of standard operating procedure, 10 years, 10 years. And the truth of the matter is you should be running your cash flow as to when you think the property is going to be worth the most, right? <laughs> yeah, so if that's yeah. in six years, yeah. then run a six-year cash flow. If you right. think that's going to be in Because that's what years, the investor's probably The investor's going to sell when yeah. it's the maximal time for them right. to sell in the marketplace. Right. Um, but what we're doing right now is a, as a matter of discipline is we're paying attention to where you are in the local market cycle. Yeah. You know, are you at peak pricing? And if you're at peak pricing, then you need to start. And what we're, we're seeing investors react to that, mm -hmm. you know, when when apartments are going out, when the, when the historical norm for apartments is 275, 300,000 a door, and there's a $400,000 a door buy, that can't also be at the lowest cap rate 
ever right. seen, right? right? You have right. to, the cap rate has a relationship to income growth. Right. And if you always keep that in mind, which, which we do, yeah. uh, I think you'll be okay. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, we're gonna take a short break. When we get back, I wanna ask you about some of the various sectors and, and parts of the country, and what you guys are looking forward to uh, in Viewpoint moving forward. So stay with us, I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Check it out. It is really good commercial real estate agent training. It's CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Well, today we're talking with Anthony Graziano. He's CEO of Integra Realty Source Resources about their report viewpoint. And think about this. They're doing appraisals all over the country. They have over 50 offices. So they look at last year and they look at the year ahead to look at what we might see uh, coming down the pike. And let's talk about some of the, the sectors. And uh, I sell office buildings, so let's start there. Uh, what, what are you guys predicting for the office sector moving forward? You obviously had a great year this year. Uh, across the board, transaction volumes were up. Uh, east and west coasts, uh, about 14%. Uh, over last year, over 2019, closed about 14% up in both the, the coastal markets. Uh, south was relatively uh, level, uh, and the central region was also up about 15%. So we saw uh, much more, many more transactions in the office sector, which is signaling uh, investor you know, interest in that sector. Um, what's very interesting is the composition and types of investors that were buying office buildings, mm -hmm. really dominated by institutional real estate investors and REITs. Um, they were also sellers, but they were really net buyers. So we saw the institutional world move into the office market in a big way um, in 2019. We expect that to continue in 2020. Um, despite the fact that you know, shifts in employment could change occupancy and rent projections within the office sector, um, the office sector tends to have longer term leases, right? So you tend to have five and 10 year leases on revenue, so you have much more stable revenue as opposed to, say, the hotel sector, which, you know, reprices every night, every month, every every year. So uh, we saw bigger bigger investments in office buildings around the country, um, and not all urban. Uh, we saw a lot of urban activity, but we also started to see suburban activity in the office sector as well, uh, because there hasn't been a lot of new construction in that sector. Uh, so um, overall, good conditions in 2019, probably condition, continued good conditions heading into 2020, because we expect that, uh, you know, leasing velocity will maintain its, its pace. And so we're, we're bullish on the office sector in, in 2020. And when you see more institutional and, and REITs uh, buying office properties, uh, being net buyers, is that the reason that, that you feel like uh, performance is going to be strong and, and valuations continue to climb? Well, the institutional money tends to be lower leverage, so it, it has uh, some good stability, even if things turn down. Um, you don't tend to create a lot of distress when the majority of buyers are institutional buyers, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you tend, they tend to use low leverage and drive their return gains really on cash flow. Mm -hmm. um, so that's usually a positive for, for the overall stability of the market. And they like office because they, you just, they feel it's going to do well? Or? Well, I mean, look, there's certain REITs that just specialize in certain asset classes, sure, right? Sure. So there are, there are office REITs, and 
they're into that market to, to basically service the capital that they've raised. Yeah. Um, so to a certain extent, a lot of it is also, a ref on the REIT side at least, a lot of it is a reflection of the amount of money that's gravitating and being pushed into that sector. Yeah. They're, forced, they're forced to deploy the money. Yeah, one uh, large owner of office buildings I was to talk to the other day said something that I usually hear multifamily uh, owners say. They Multifamily owners say, well, people are gonna have to live somewhere. Uh, he said, well, people are going to need office space regardless of the economy. Right. Uh, so. I'm not sure if I buy into that theory, but it was, it's a good theory. I like the way it's being hey, promoted. When you buy office, you buy office, yeah. right? You I like mean, look, it. the yeah. office market, uh, uh, the, the WeWork, I'll call it the stumble right now, but mm -hmm. I, I certainly don't want to call it a failure, but the WeWork uh, repositioning that's happening now that really started in the early part of 19 uh, is going to be very interesting. There's going to be some exposure in those markets. A lot of the new developers were using those short-term rental, those short-term models like WeWork uh, to anchor their building to get started on getting a 200,000 square foot building pre-leased. Right? I mean, one of the risks in in many of the markets that aren't, you know, New York and Chicago and, and LA uh, is it's very difficult to find large tenants to headline a building. Yeah. So uh, if you're going to build a million square foot building, you need to start with a certain amount pre-leased. Um, those that started with those models, uh, with those pre-leasing, they're, they're going to they're going to bump around in 2020 to find, uh, you know, to find where that lands. Uh, but otherwise, I, you know, I think the the economy is continued strength will continue to buoy the office market, and, and rents are rising. And how do uh, appraisers feel about an office building um, related to the uh, co-working tenancy in there? Is there a certain percentage level that starts making or adjusting the value? Again, you know, I'll, I'll say appraisers need to understand what the, how the, what the market's perspective is. I think if you talk to the institutional uh, debt side of the business, what they'll tell you is that when that building gets to 20, 25% or more in occupancy from a short-term rental occupant, mm -hmm. it starts to get speculative. They start to, they start to price that differently and, and price risk differently. Um, the other thing is how you count the revenue, right? So you're counting that revenue based on the revenue that, that WeWork is making from the individual tenants, that's really gross sales. That's the same as if I occupy a building and however many appraisals or valuation services we sell, that's my gross, right? right. That's not rent. Right. Um, really how you price the rent in at market and mark the rent to market matters. Uh, most of the, the big players in that space, they put a lot of TI in of their own money. So they're heavily invested in the TI. Yeah. The question of, is whether or not that translates into the future. A lot of landlords said, hey, I'll run it myself. If the tenant blows out, all the TI is done, and I'll operate it as short-term rental space myself. Yeah, uh, It's not as easy, though. Right. Not as easy as it looks. You're right. Yeah, that's true. All right, well, let's talk about retail. Everybody uh, obviously sees the, the news, even if they're not in commercial real estate, that uh, retail is going through some changes. Uh, what's your outlook there? Sure. I mean, the outlook is retail is going to continue to go through changes for, for quite some time. Um, we think that the continued growth in, in online sales um, will continue to affect retail, and it already has been. So if you really, if you look at the composition of buyers there, what you see is a very high percentage of the buyers of retail centers, big centers, are what are classified as developer investors. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing in a lot of the markets is these older retail centers being positioned, and in many cases rezoned to mixed use. Uh, most of the communities don't want to see a large 300,000 square foot dead box. Um, now obviously this doesn't work in rural America to build mixed use, but on the edges of most of our major urban cores, there are you know low-rise, three to five-story suburban fringe cities, and so you take a big three or four hundred thousand square foot center, and you say I'm going to build some 
garden apartments. I'm going to intersperse that with some retail, add some conventional suburban office, and they're repositioning those centers. So we've actually seen transaction activity up on the retail side. Um, the neighborhood centers and the smaller centers, which traditionally used to trade at a bit of a discount versus the larger anchored power centers or community centers, mm -hmm. that's almost reversed now. You know, the darling of the retail industry is the little neighborhood center yeah. uh, that's populated with the types of tenants that I don't want to say are uh, recession-proof from online retailing, but yeah. it's difficult to get your hair done online, right? So <laughs> yeah. uh, th those that are oriented towards food service, restaurants, hair salons, dry cleaners, the convenience neighborhood services yeah. are performing very well. Yeah. yeah. And is there any changes that you guys have seen uh, when it comes to valuing uh, these retail properties uh, related to some of the things you've just mentioned? Uh, you know, are, are the do you actually look at the tenants when you're doing an appraisal and say, well, are they inter internet resistant, or you know, are they experiential? And 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 do you look closer at the whole the whole development when you're valuing these properties? So we, we absolutely are looking at the tenant profiles and looking at the credit ratings of the tenants, looking at what's happening, uh, you know, in the public markets against against the tenant profile, right? That's part of the risk analysis that we're undertaking as part of the retail. As far as the impact of experiential, I think that tends to be um, a little bit fuzzier uh, in terms of our ability to analyze how much that benefits. Uh, some of that is really true investment in creating an experience, but some of it is just really about the location, right? It's really, it's, it's, that experience is created by virtue of where the, where it's located in the marketplace. Right. Um, but we are definitely looking at tenant risk on a, on a long-term basis. It's just difficult to gauge because right. a lot of very, very solid tenants haven't made it through the right. last 10 years. Right, right, well, that's interesting. So uh, talk to me about um, a property example that uh, maybe hasn't sold in 10 years and maybe it's in a market where the property taxes are, are really low, yeah. uh, and you're doing an evaluation that's really supposed to tell us, hey, what would this sell for if it was marketed, right? So do you go in and, and adjust the taxes based on if it did sell today and got reassessed? All the time, but the yeah. difficult, you know, many, many jurisdictions mm -hmm. are ad valorem, so the taxes, mm -hmm. despite whatever the occupancy is, they're already set at market. Mm -hmm. You know, in markets, uh, like as New Jersey, for example, mm -hmm. is absolutely an ad valorem market. So. Mm -hmm. You pay full real estate taxes, it's reassessed every year, and the sale doesn't trigger the reassessment. Okay. But in the markets like California and Florida uh, and many others, where your sale price triggers your reassessment, that's a lot of the pain that we see in the, in the appraisal of refi for refinancing. I bet. Because people go in and they think, oh, my asset, you know, I've improved the rents and I've done all these things, and the value is going to be higher, but they're calculating that, you know, using their old real estate taxes. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, we're always looking and benchmarking those taxes to market. Absolutely. Yeah, and we see the pain just when people are selling. Right. And, you know, and we have to tell them, well, look, there's going to be a new new tax bill in town here. Uh, be a new sheriff uh, collecting this yeah. funds. And, and look, I'll tell you, you know, yeah. we tell our investors and, and the, the people that we do counseling and advisory work mm -hmm. for, you're not doing yourself any favor by underestimating your real estate taxes, not yeah. only from a finance perspective, but, you know, consider this. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, Lincoln Road, Miami Beach. Um, Average rents used to be in the $75 to $100 square foot range, you know, pre-2009. Rents started to escalate very, very quickly uh, in 2013, 14, 15, as Miami Beach was really drawing strong. And so rents went to $200, $250, dollars a square foot. And the owners, many of the owners said, well, now's the time to exit, right? right? Peak of the right. market. 
So they were selling these buildings for $3,500 to $5,000 a square foot. The tenants were committed to leases at $250, $300 a square foot in rent, mm -hmm. but they had been paying taxes from when the owners bought the building, 1950. So right. their taxes were like $10 a square foot. Mm -hmm. Well, they sell a building for $5,000 a foot. All of a sudden, the taxes are $80. Right. So now their rent, their effective occupancy cost, goes from $300 to $380. Wow. And so you saw a lot of tenants fail out on that, you know, right. and that, that it, it actually affected that re rent reset, affected the effective market rent levels in the whole neighborhood. Wow. So we always tell investors, you know, you're, you're, and, and, and owners, you know, manage the real estate taxes, but don't be so overly aggressive that you don't consider the impact on your tenants. Yeah. Because ultimately your, your tenants effective rent is a combination of whatever the face rent is, plus their other occupancy costs, real estate taxes included. Right. Yeah. The tenant has to, yeah, the increase taxes, increases occupancy costs. Can they make it? Right. Can they pay that? Uh, and if they or can they find a better deal on that lease? I mean, certainly in, certainly in retail. Now, in office, yeah. of course, yeah. the tenant feels the pain yeah. if they're gross leases. Yeah. Right. If you don't calculate that right, yeah. then your NOI projection is going to be yeah, off. That's true. Well, let's talk about industrial. That's really been the darling market. And it seems like the, uh, the future is really bright there. What do you guys see? I mean, look, there's no denying that industrial is the back end of the Internet, right? Mm -hmm. It's the physical manifestation of everything that's happening with mm -hmm. not only online retailing, but the changes in logistics. Right, I can order up on Amazon and that's an online purchase, but then it gets delivered the next day. And so that change has been very interesting. We saw a lot of industrial demand in the port markets over the last 10 years, right? The main logistics hubs, northern New Jersey, L.A., uh, uh, Atlanta. So these incoming coastal hubs got a lot of the distribution activity. But over the last two or three years, we've seen a lot more activity in the interior markets to service that sort of last mile logistics piece, same day delivery uh, and things of that nature. So um, industrial's been strong across the board, right? I mean, transaction volume last year was up 30% overall in most markets um, and rent growth continues to be strong. Uh, the other good thing about industrial, I think, is that the uh, relationship of the land value to the building value is much closer than it is in, say, an office building. So uh, the buyers really are buying current income. They're really not buying forward reversion yeah. as much. Um, so I think that, you know, that speaks to the stability. I think industrial remains strong, but we will reach a tipping point where we've built what we need to build. build uh, and, the, you know, that in many markets, there's been a lot of activity. And so the internal activity that's happening now is, is new to market. Uh, but eventually that will that will start to cool yeah. in the next two to three years. And start to level off uh the interest in the in the market, yeah. yeah Based look, on the it, demographics, it, it very much depends on how how deep you think online can cut into the overall retail sales. Yeah. Um, you know, we went from zero to about twenty percent mm -hmm. of total sales in online retailing in the last ten years. Mm -hmm. We know we're heading towards forty percent, which means that all of that logistics back end really has doubled and may double again. But at some point, you're not going to sell 100% of retail services online. And yeah. So when, when, when that reaches sort of a natural point of penetration, and we yeah. think that number is between 45 and 50%, then the industrial will start to cool down a bit. I don't think you've seen the Jetsons uh, then, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I have. That was a big, that was a big one. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a short break. When we get back, I'm going to ask Anthony about multifamily and hotel, what they saw for 19, and what they see moving forward. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? 
you're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty, for client-oriented asset and occupancy solutions. Give me a call or visit bullrealty.com. Today we're talking with Anthony Graziano. He's CEO of Integra Realty Resources about Viewpoint, their annual report. And I'd like to ask you about your, your how did 2019 did and, and what you see moving forward for multifamily. I mean, it seems like there's, is there, is there an end in sight there? <laughs> <laughs> Look, the, uh, the multifamily uh, velocity over the last few years has been tremendous. And every mm -hmm. year, everybody says cap rates are going to have to go up. They're as low as they could possibly go. Mm -hmm. We have to stop building. Uh, and we haven't, they haven't, and we probably won't. Yeah. Um, look, the trends in multifamily have been and remain, I think, very positive. Mm -hmm. um, some of that is, as I discussed before, resulting from demographic changes, right? We were more of a tower. The younger millennial generation isn't buying the single family homes the way they were, and, and they're migrating, delaying their decisions to have babies and get married, and so multifamily's a natural option for them for longer, right? They don't stay in an apartment till they're 24, they're staying in an apartment until they're maybe 30 or 34, yeah. which is giving you a longer tail. Um, the amount of single family housing creation is down and we are seeing more multifamily built in the downtown urban areas, uh, which I think is, is a long-term benefit, but it's really at the higher end of the spectrum. So a lot of that is new construction that has an experience that has very highly amenitized. Um, we've reached a point where a lot of these apartment projects are at, at a quality level of what we used to build condominium buildings for. Exactly. And so yeah. when you look at the pricing on these units, um, you're getting a lot for your money, um, and your long-term goal is to just have a, a good place to live. But at the same time, we haven't done a lot in terms of creating good, quality, affordable housing at the multifamily level. So construction has been high in a lot of markets. We're, we're monitoring that. We talk about it in viewpoints. Certainly when we're doing the work at, on the ground level, we're always looking at the supply side. Um, there are markets this year that will start to see rent leveling off or even decreasing a result of new supply coming online. Mm -hmm. I think for the last probably year and a half to two years, the lenders have been much more stringent when they're looking at the com combination of supply demand as it relates to rent growth. So um, we haven't seen a big jump in the capitalization rates. But again, that's because there's a lot of money behind apartment investment, and the investors desire to own apartments. They think it's the safe haven of all the commercial real estate asset classes traditionally. So we've seen a continued a, a good amount of money behind the multifamily development. But the, the other thing that's buoyed the market is the short-term rental trends. Um, you know, when you look at the Airbnbs and others, a lot of the, there's, there's the national sort of short-term rental groups and now there, there's a whole subset of users, uh, Saunders, Domeo, and others that are actually going into new apartment complexes that are being built by institutional uh, developers mm -hmm. and saying, hey, we'll take 30% of the units or 40% of the units on a master lease. Mm -hmm. So the absorption of these newer projects is being driven by some of these short-term rental uh, operators, and they're charging hotel rates. So wow. they can pay market rent, full market rent for the unit, furnish it and then rent it out. That's also creating some shadow hotel inventory in a lot of these markets. And in markets that are very land constrained and hotel constrained, 
um, or where ADRs are really high, take Nashville, um, that's a very successful strategy. The downside is you don't really have an apartment. You sort of have a hybrid yeah. apartment hotel, right? right? People are moving in and out every weekend. And so we'll see if those, those operational risks withstand. But overall, um, all of those various pressures, the, the apartment markets remain pretty strong. Yeah, well, well it'll be interesting to see the impact of that because if I live in an apartment and I think people have annual leases and I see people moving in and out every day. That's right. Uh, it's like I have some uh, condos down in Florida and buildings that are, are all pretty much residents. And I have uh, a condo in a building where there's more transient people staying overnight. And it's a different environment. I mean, you know, you see people walking around with, you know, in the morning with uh, you know, kegs of beer, not for yeah, no, I know. Even, even walking into the suitcases, yeah. but I mean, yeah. it, it adds to the wear and tear, right? I yeah. mean, the, the level of maintenance that a hotel garners is yeah. different than the level, typical level of maintenance that you put into a, to an apartment. Right. And so you can't really operate an apartment like a hotel and not expect that to affect yeah. your operating costs. But the bigger issue is in condominiums, it's a bit easier to control, right? You call the condominium association board yeah. together, and you vote right. to not allow short-term rentals or otherwise. Yeah. With the apartments, it's profitable for the landlords to do it. Yeah. And so the only recourse is whether they start to suffer, you know, occupancy or rent declines on the balance of the full-time residents. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, obviously, a lot of the communities are resisting um, the change as well. So you've right. seen an uprising of community um, involvement in, in the management of the short-term rentals. Yeah. In really high-value markets, uh, you know, in California, in New York, we're also starting to see rent control dialogue leak back into the politics of the day, right? How do we create affordable housing in San Francisco? Well, let's, let's rent control it. But the reality of it is that tends to put more constraints on supply, yeah. which over time exacerbates the problem. Yeah. It also then, because of the constraints on supply, doesn't require that the landlords maintain the units at the same level because they don't have to be competitive because there's no risk of competition. Right. So uh, I think that this reaction to high rents, to rent control is, is going to be an interesting sort of redux of what we saw in the 1960s and 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to take a while to, to play out. But, uh, you know, we don't believe that that's the right strategy in the long term. We believe yeah. supply creation is the right strategy in the long term. Um, yeah. And so for the communities that we consult with, you know, we're advocating changing the expectations of density in certain markets to allow more density so that the house more sort of low-rise multifamily three and four-story infill can be developed. Um, changing the parking requirements, a lot of the hurdles to creating affordable housing rest on the regulations and the cost of regulation in a community. And so, you know, we consult with a lot of uh, communities and counties on, on these types of issues, right? The supply and demand and what, what could change the development pattern. And so we always say, you know, look at your parking requirements. Look at your impact fees and your other regulatory hurdles that, that keep you from developing affordable housing. And then ultimately, what are the incentives to develop for the middle? You know, it's, just, yeah. it's not as profitable to develop for the middle. Right. But I will tell you, there is, a, there is an untapped line of people waiting for good quality, you know, mid-scale mid housing. Right. And, and a lot of it is just a combination of land costs and construction costs that if we could just get those costs down 20 or 30 percent, we could build for that affordable market, and whoever figures out how to do that, the world will be beating down their door. Yeah, well, it's a good point. I think affordability is becoming a problem too for these these Class A uh, communities. In, anyway, I mean, how many tenants can pay you know three, four thousand a month for a studio? Sure. Uh, and, and actually afford to pay it. Well, let's let's jump to uh, hospitality. You mentioned uh, 
hotels already. Yeah. Um, you know, how did hotels do in, in 19 and what do you guys expect? So uh, 2019 was a difficult year for hotels. ADRs across the board were relatively level. Uh, RevPAR declined slightly in some markets uh, or was up slightly, one or two percent. It was not a banner year for hotels, um, but we've been having year-over-year successes in that, in that segment, and so everybody's building. If you look at the amount of construction, a lot of what's going forward into next year, we're saying the warning signs of retrenching on rates is going to happen in 2020, um, just because of the, the sheer number of units that we're creating in the various markets and the fact that any change in the economic status, the first thing to hit is the U.S. discretionary dollar for travel. Yeah. So, um, you know, business travel is up because the economy is good. Domestic leisure travel is up because the economy is good. And when the economy is not good, those two things suffer immediately. And you combine that with increasing supply. We're cautioning, you know, both our lender and investor clients to really look, look hard in the market and be rational about what the expectations are for 2020. So rental rates could drop in some of these properties. Yes. And, and is that more in the limited service type hotels or is that other types as well? Is that full it, it, service? It depends on the market. I yeah. mean, certainly there's been more construction in the limited service sector. So mm -hmm. I think just on the supply side, the limited service sector is much more exposed. We've seen a lot of that ADR and RevPAR growth in that sector, mm -hmm. primarily driven by business travel. Um, you know, a few years ago, you could go to a, a normal all suites hotel or, you know, any type of limited service hotel, your rates are 125 to $150. I can't get into an airport hotel now for less than 180 to $200 a night. Right, right. You know, $200 a night used to be your leisure travel overnight stay in a major metro market. That number is now 300 or 325 or even 400 in some yeah. cases. So um, it's just the 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 repricing of the of the hotel market has been great for the early investors and those that have have participated in the market over the last five or six years. But now that we're building into this next cycle, we just need to be smart about where we're going to be. Okay. So I guess then you're predicting there's a chance in some of these markets that some of these valuations could drop a little bit if the rates are going to drop. Yeah, I think we're looking at that and we're yeah. looking, yeah, we're absolutely sensitivity testing those. Yeah. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, what would you leave our audience with um, about viewpoint and, and kind of the theme and, and what they should think about moving forward? So look, I, I said in my closing, I think that it's, it's, it's going to be a good 50% chance we're going to have a good year. And I'm very hopeful that we continue on this trajectory. At the same time, uh, we're here for you, right? Mm -hmm. we, we do our primary business is to give good, sound, independent advice mm -hmm. based on the things that we know in the local market. All of our offices are serviced by local market uh, professionals that have been there a very long time and, and know what's happening uh, you know, across the street and across town. So uh, rely on your professionals and take advantage of us, and uh, we hope to work with you. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate the information from Mr. Real Estate. As always, a pleasure, Michael. <laughs> thank you. If you'd like to see the actual report, uh, visit their website. It's IRR.com, IRR.com. We'll also have a link at our show website, CREshow.com. Well, thank you for joining us around the country. If you're watching or listening, uh, please join us on uh, social media and uh, leave us your comments. Uh, please share the show and uh, contact us anytime. Well, until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com.
Commercial Agent Success Strategies, incredible training for commercial agents. Visit CommercialAgentSuccess.com.